Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Thursday. I have to think about that for a second. It is Thursday, January the 9th, 2020. Wonder how you're seeing things this morning. Uh, are things in focus for you yet? How would you bring them into focus? How will you uh, look through the lens of scripture and a biblical or redemptive or gospel worldview in order to rightly see the things um, of our time, the things of this day, bring the gospel to bear on everything today? So, you know, being in the Word before we get into the world is an essential part of that. So I am in Acts chapter 9 today. Where in the Word are you? Always a provocative question for us to uh, begin our conversation. I'm wondering uh, this week, are you watching the Jeopardy! Greatest of All Time series? Now, for those of you who um, have seen the word or or the, the language of Jeopardy! Goat, and you're not familiar with the acronym greatest of all time, you may have wondered what the Jeopardy goat was or who that is. Um, well, they are seeking to dis- determine who the Jeopardy goat is, greatest of all time, uh, in a series that began a couple of, of nights ago. Wondering if you're watching that, Alex Trebek, the host of uh, of that uh, long-running show, um, we have all been aware because he has asked for us to be praying for him. We are all aware that he is... Uh, dealing with pancreatic cancer. He did offer a health update. Um, doesn't sound like he is going to announce his retirement, um, you know, particularly anytime soon. Um, but Jeopardy got me thinking. Jeopardy, the the whole process of answering a, a question um, or answering an observation with a question, that if your answer is a question, like, what does that look like conversationally? And um and we think back to the way Jesus engaged people and the way Jesus often reframed conversations. He very frequently answered a question, particularly questions that were uh, designed to entrap or, um, I mean, the word is trick. You could never really trick Jesus, but you could also never entrap him. Uh, he often answered a question with a question. And so I just thought that today, as we're thinking about Um, the games we play with God, as we're thinking maybe about the games that other people try to play with us, or the way they try to entrap us as Christians in conversations today, maybe learning this practice of Jesus to answer questions with questions um, might be a a good exercise for us as Christians. So, you know, when, when, uh, even when, this is not an entrapment example, but when John's disciples came and asked Jesus you know, how is it that uh, the, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered them, you know, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Well, the question itself provokes the question in your heart and mind. What is Jesus talking about? Who is the bridegroom? What does it mean to be present as a guest in uh, in the midst of the bridegroom? And why would we 
be even considering um, that he's leaving. Like, what is all of that about? So you see how Jesus's question and answer to a question provokes a conversation, provokes deeper questions um, and deeper conversations. And so let me encourage you. I found 29 places where Jesus um, answered a question with a question. And so there's lots of them. Um, and so I just encourage you maybe to spend a little time today or in this week uh, as as the world is focused on the Jeopardy greatest of all time, maybe we could consider sort of a um, an exercise of Jeopardy. Uh, are you in Jeopardy with God? Like, that's not a good place to be, by the way. Um, that can be resolved by accepting the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in terms of discipleship, maybe an exercise of examining the gospels this week for the places where Jesus answers a question with a question. Maybe that's a little good Jeopardy exercise. All right, next up, I've got Ben Johnson. He and I are going to talk about some headlines related to physician-assisted death. Uh, That is going to be an an ongoing topic of conversation for us as Christians to engage in, in the culture of death in which we live as people of life. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ben Johnson is managing editor of, uh, of the Acton Institute, uh, and he is the executive editor of the Acton Institute's flagship journal, which is called Religion and Liberty. Much of his online work focuses on the principles that are necessary to create a free and virtuous society, um, particularly in what we would describe as the transatlantic sphere, so the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Today, our headlines um, are going to deal both here in the U.S. and in Canada. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you, Carmen. So um, let's just start with a headline that um, that I sent to you and you've probably already familiar with this headline out of Vermont related to physician assisted death. Um, And let's remind people where we are in terms of um, our our sense in the United States of America that we not only have a right to determine um, on the front end of life when life begins, but increasingly Americans believe they have the right to determine when life ends and when their own life should end. Well, that's true. And uh, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin, for for example, uh, talked about this in his uh, State of the State address, how his father had availed himself of a law that he personally signed, allowing for physician-assisted suicide. Uh, One of the things that's alarming about the Vermont story is just the trend. Uh, In the first four years of the law, 60% of the people who are eligible for physician-assisted suicide under the under the structure that's put in place, availed themselves of physician-assisted suicide. In the next two years, which is the last two years that they've measured, 82% have availed themselves. So the percentage of people who are taking advantage of physician-assisted suicide, asking others to help them end their lives, is increasing here in the United States. And uh, this this is the case both in absolute numbers of people who are eligible in states where it is legal and in the number of states that are either legalizing or considering legalizing this practice. When we think about people who might be, you know, the term eligible for for assisted uh, suicide, first of all, that's just troubling language to me, um, which means that we have a criteria 
by which state by state we're deciding um, who who may and who may not uh, invite their physician into a suicide pact. Um, but so there, state by state, there there is this um, this series of questions that would be asked to determine whether or not you're eligible. The most vulnerable um, to this are are people who are already um, sick and aged and just living already in ways that um, for many people would be considered lonely and sad. But loneliness and sadness are not, um, in my view, reasons for a person to take their own life. I mean, like I, this conversation about the value um, of a human life and the dignity of the individual, uh, it's just a troubling, it's very troubling to me. As well, it should be. And uh, it should be it should be troubling to everyone for a lot of reasons. As you said, one of the main reasons that people take their lives is not that they are necessarily terminally ill in, in the sense that they're going to die instantly, uh, or that uh, in many cases in other countries around the world, that they are terminally ill at all. Uh, in the Netherlands, 50%, 56% of all physician-assisted suicides stem from loneliness. Uh, some of the people who have been uh, who have applied for assisted uh, physician-assisted suicide have done so on the grounds of a perpetual depression, as you said, on uh, several conditions that are not life-threatening. One woman in the United States said she wanted to die because she had, li- had to live a life without love. Uh, another one, which was just heartbreaking to hear that, uh, another one said that uh, it was due to uh, a loss of bodily control and she'd become incontinent. Now that That is certainly a troubling situation, but it's not life-threatening or life-endangering. And if it were, there's value in life, even when it's imperfect, even when it's marred, even when it is tremendously suffering. God's immortal imago Dei is imprinted on the human soul. It cannot be erased. Uh, it is for, it is it, with each and every single one of us, regardless of how perfectly or imperfectly our bodies happen to function, there is immortal value in the soul that God has given to us. So it should be troubling. Just to bring in one other aspect, it should be troubling to those who are in the medical profession. This violates the Hippocratic Oath on every single level. The Hippocratic Oath says, I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. By the way, it goes on the same sentence to say, in like manner, I will not give a woman a pessary to produce abortion. So that's the Hippocratic Oath. The American Medical Association still to this day says that uh, physician-assisted suicide is, quote, fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer. Uh, they, they go on to say that it would be impossible to control this and there would be major social risks because you're going to have pressure from the state on uh, disfavored groups. And uh, just one final word, which is the story I always tell of Barbara Wagner, 64-year-old woman in 2008, she had a recurrence of cancer. She was on Oregon State Health Plan. She applied and asked for them to cover her cancer treatment. And they wrote back a letter saying that they would not cover her cancer treatment, but they would happily pay $50 for her assisted suicide prescription. That's where all of this ultimately ends. Yeah, and Oregon, I mean, Oregon is maybe the the saddest, uh, I mean, every example of this is sad, but in Oregon, they've actually been, for a number of years now, like, not just quantifying um, quantifying this in terms of, you know, prescriptions written and, and people who have taken their own life in this way, but they've also been um, uh, cataloging the end-of-life concerns. And Ben, we're not talking about people who whose primary concern is, you know, is that they're terminally ill. The, the number one issue is loss of autonomy. Um, the second reason given for taking one's own life in this way, they're less able to engage in activities that make life 
by their estimation, quote unquote, enjoyable. Um, third is a loss of dignity. Well, if if I believe that I am an in, image bearer of the living God, if I understand myself in that way, that's a dignity that's never lost. I mean, there might be functional things that I can either no longer do or no longer control, but that doesn't mean that I'm robbed of my actual dignity as a human being who bears the image of God in the world. I mean, I know that you and I have to take a break, but I'm I'm so troubled by this. I'm just um, makes me so sad. And I want to pivot our conversation to Canada just across the northern border um, and continue this conversation about medically assisted death um, and and tie it to a conversation about organ donation. My conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute continues in just a moment. I see dressed in Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Um, ben, let's talk about um, what what we're learning from across the northern border in Canada in terms of medically assisted death and the boon it is providing to organ donation. Well, it has been. Uh, of course, physician-assisted suicide has been legal in Canada much longer than uh, in the United States. And uh, Ontario, the most liberal province uh, probably in in, uh, Canada, was uh, dealing with this. One of the ways that they have uh, dealt with it is anyone who goes through the process and receives approval for physician-assisted suicide is quickly contacted by the organ donation service to ask if they wish to become an organ donor. And uh, this has increased the number of people who are are donating organs, as you might uh, imagine, about 18 different organs, 95 different tissue donors, a 14% increase uh, thanks uh, to medically assisted death, what they they call medically assisted death. They they shorten that to M-A-I-D, medically assisted death. I I think that it's more appropriate the way that it is shortened, MAD. This is a MAD policy. Mm. The fact is this is is the government – Frequently using this kind of an idea that uh, if you give up your life, something good will come out of it. You'll give up uh, your life, but your organs will be used to give other people life. And that kind of thinking is not only dangerous if you get someone who's depressed, which, as we've already discussed, is the majority of people seeking physician-assisted suicide. And then you give them this enticement that uh, it will be their chance to, to make somebody else's life better, but they have to die first. Uh, that makes it almost a heroic Christ-like effort uh, on their part, and, and it's completely against the spirit of Christ. It's not possible to to say we're going to have a good outcome based on a negative means. An immoral means can't produce a good outcome. Uh, I can't go out and uh, hold up a, an innocent couple and take all their money and then give it to the poor, uh, no matter how they got the money or how deserving the poor might be. Robbery is wrong, no matter who does it. So... If you are committing suicide, no matter what good you think is going to come out of it, you're taking a life, and that uh, that is the most important thing here. But this is used; it's instrumentalizing the state in order to try and to uh, to help uh, people come come to grips with the idea that it's okay for a physician-assisted suicide because something good comes out of it. And I think this is going to be another pressure that is used, where the state uh, uses its own mechanisms, whether it's its need for organ donation, or as we talked about in the last segment, its budget constrictions where it doesn't want to pay for the more expensive treatment, but physician-assisted suicide is better on the state ledger and it helps reduce the overall deficit. These things are going to come to play in the ethical decisions that we make at the end of life. Uh, Here's what's stunning to me about the conversation when we connect um, physician-assisted suicide 
with organ donation. There are so many things that disqualify you from being an organ donor that it's extraordinary. I mean, if you were scratched by your pet in the 12 months prior to your death and you can't prove that your pet had a rabies shot, you're disqualified. Um, If you, you know, if you happen to have lived on a military base um, between 1980 and 1996, you can't be an organ donor. Like, it's crazy stuff. Like, it's crazy things that limit, at least here in the United States, um, your, if you, if you ever had a tattoo that you received when, when you were in prison, you're, you're forever disqualified. And yet you are not disqualified from being an organ donor if, if supposedly your condition is so terminal that, um, that allowing you to take your own life seems socially acceptable to us. So we're not talking about people who have the kind of conditions that, um, that are causing them to, to know, to know with any certainty that their life is going to naturally end anytime soon. Because those are the kinds of diseases that already, and the kinds of infections that already disqualify you from organ donation. And so we're talking about people who are otherwise And I want to use the word physically healthy here in a way that's meaningful because I recognize that these people are who are living with chronic conditions. But a chronic condition is not um, it does not mean imminent death Um, only if you take it by your own hand. And so I just feel like for Christians, um, you know, we we cannot succumb to the cultural um, wave that is upon us related to inviting death into our families in this way. And so I wanted to bring it up here at the very beginning of the year because I know that we will be facing this conversation across the country, not only this year, but in the years to come. This is this is only going to become a growing trend uh, in the U.S., even as it is a growing trend across our northern border in Canada. Yes, and I think for those of us who are Christians, we have to remember a couple of things. Medicine is intended to heal. It's never intended to kill. So if medicine takes a life, it's not truly medicine. We have to remember that the Imago Dei, the image of God, is in everyone from the moment of conception to natural death. It doesn't matter the state of the individual in terminal pain, uh, whether their organs function, whether they have all of their body parts. It's immaterial. The image of God is complete because they are made in the image uh, in in the fact that they reflect God in their moral character. And that's the most important thing that we take with us when we leave this world. I think these are the things that have to guide us when we look into our ethical decisions. We have to make sure that national budgets, national health care systems don't incentivize the state in order to help bring about uh, a case where people who are already hopeless, instead of reaching out for hope and extending their lives and maybe making a positive example for others, instead choose suicide. Ben, um, you help us think with such faith and clarity on the issues of the day. So thank you in advance for being with us, uh, you know, on the Thursdays of this year. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. May God bless you. Likewise. It is Sanctity of Life Month. We're going to return to this topic in an ongoing basis for the next couple of weeks. Um, So uh, thank you this morning for engaging with us. We'll be right back. So do you have a stamp with your picture on it? Probably not. I don't. I don't know. You, may, you might be able to go to like stamps.com and make one. But there's like, there's there's a guy out there who not only has a stamp uh, with his face on it, um, but opportunities to donate to what he is doing, which is uh, a, an absolutely Christ-centered ministry. Instructions for donating were published in the New York Times. Uh, he's got a brother who's a Catholic priest. He's one of six kids. Grew up in the state of New York, 
Um, but for the last 12 years, he has been serving a population of totally unserved people in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. His name is Tom Katina, and he is my guest up next. Uh, he is likened unto Albert Schweitzer, the 20th century medical missionary. Um, and I would say that you know his heart for Christ is infectious, even as he works to um, eradicate the causes of um, of disease and concern in the the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. So is it? It's a he's a fascinating, fabulous brother in Christ. I'm excited to be talking with him. Tom Katina here next on Mornings with Carmen. So you might be wondering, um, hey, if I miss something or um, or if I hear something on the live broadcast and I think to myself, wow, that that's really that would really be great to share with my friend Sarah or my coworker Bob or, you know, I, you know, Sarah and Bob. Um, you can always go to MyFaithRadio.com and get the podcast of that particular episode that you heard, and you can share it with your friend. You can you can grab the link, and you can send it to him in a text message. You can send it to him in an email. It's a really effective way of you becoming an ambassador of this ministry, um, extending what God is doing here to more and more people. Maybe you uh, have an opportunity to listen in the mornings, but you miss Susie Larson's show uh, at noon, or you miss uh, Bill Arnold's show in the afternoon. You can go do the same thing. Their podcasts are posted every day as well. And so we want you to join us not only live listening right now, but we want you to become ambassadors of what we're doing by extending this ministry to more and more people. Share the podcast that you find at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Let me ask you a question. Are you content with whatever your teen wants to do with his or her life? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens often feel that they can't live up to their parents' expectations, even if your hopes are totally reasonable. So let me ask the question again. Will you be authentically content with whatever they tell you they want to do in life? Will you be happy if they decide to pursue something other than your personal preference? It's wise to begin talking about expectations, both from your perspective and from your teen's point of view. Develop a heart for your teen's desires, even if it's not what you'd prefer. It's the key to keeping your relationship with your child authentic, growing, and healthy. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Back to Mornings with Carmen. I am uh, really honored to be joined today by Dr. Tom Katina. He is a surgeon with the African Mission Healthcare. You can find the hospital and information about the hospital at AfricanMissionHealthcare.org. Dr. Katina, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Yes, thank you, Carmen. Nice to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. First of all, uh, we're talking with you um, from the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. Let's give people a little bit of a sense of geography and what life is like in the Nuba Mountains. Right. So we're uh, we're probably one of the most remote places on Earth. We're in the southern part of the Sudan Republic. Um, just to get, get, give an idea how to reach us, like for any supplies to get to us, they've got to come from Nairobi. 
so they got to come by truck from Kenya, from Nairobi, Kenya, through Kenya, through Uganda, all the way through South Sudan up to a refugee camp in the northern part of South Sudan. And from there, we've got to drive about eight to 10 hours only during the dry season to get those goods and bring them back up here. So we're, we're pretty remote. And when you refer to a dry season, so, you know, it happens to be raining where I live today. And so that will not um, that will not conflict with, you know, my ability to go to the grocery or pick up kids from school or on and on and on. When you talk about the rainy season or the dry season, give us a sense of uh, what life is like um, for the average person living in the midst of, of those realities. Right. So they're divided into two. So each is about six months. Rainy season starts in May and ends at the end of October. And, you know, that's the time for uh, cultivation. Everybody here is a subsistence farmer and they use that time during rainy season for cultivation. Now, for us, um, the biggest problem for us is logistics. We really uh, it's very difficult to move during rainy season. There are no paved roads anywhere near where we live. So for us to move anywhere, it's all through dirt track. And that turns to mud very quickly and becomes impassable. Um, so movement for us is very, very difficult during the rainy season. And many, many patients cannot reach us during rainy season just because of lack of uh, lack of transportation and the poor state of the roads. Okay. And then, Dr. Katina, when you talk about patients trying to reach you, mm-hmm. we are talking about a hospital that is, first of all, quite unique, and then you as an individual, um, quite unique, Talk about the size of the population that is served by this hospital and then your particular role in that community. Right. So we our catchment area is about maybe 1.3 million people. The geographical area covers um, an area about the size of Austria. And um, we have patients even during the dry season. I saw one of my patients today. Uh, it was a mother and her young child that we operated on a couple of years ago. They walked seven days uh, to get here. And this is this. We're in the dry season now, so it's very remote. Uh, we've been open now for almost 12 years. Uh, for the first eight years, I was the only doctor here. Uh, now, for the past uh, three and a half years, I've had an American pediatrician with me. So I have another guy with me now, another doctor. But 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 for most of the time, we've been open. I've been the only doctor here in the mountains. So I just want that reality to settle in on people for just a moment. Um, <clears throat> For a very long period of time, Dr. Tom Katina was the only surgeon serving a population of 1.3 million people. Um, and some of his patients walk, as he just described, some seven days. I want you to imagine walking seven days for anything, let alone um, for a doctor's appointment. And as a follow-up to surgery that you or your child had, um, you know, a couple of years ago. So, like, for our follow-up appointments, you know, here in the U.S., that's just not our reality um, and so part of right. part of wanting people to hear from you today um, is to help them understand the realities in which people are living around the world and specifically in the Nuba Mountains, um, because we hear about right. Sudan in the news. We hear about South Sudan, but we don't often have conversations with individuals who are living there and serving Christ mm-hmm. there. So let's talk about your motivation mm-hmm. to be there. You could be serving anywhere in the world. Um, but this is where God has called you uniquely to serve. So talk about your commitment to the Nuba people um, and to this work. Right. So, you know, I was uh, I've been now in Africa for 20 years. I was in Kenya initially for about seven and a half years. And when I was in Kenya, I kept hearing about Sudan. 
and how difficult it was and all the problems that were here and how there was almost no access to health care. And I said, well, that's really a place I want to go and kind of sink my teeth into. And then the opportunity presented itself. The, the bishop in this diocese uh, was building a hospital, and uh, I approached him in his office. And, you know, a couple of years later, I ended up out here in Sudan. And I saw it as a place, um, you know, as a medical doctor, uh, for me, I always wanted to go somewhere where you're really, really needed by the population. And uh, this was really one of the few places on earth. I mean, one of the one of the places where really, really uh, a doc is really, really needed. And uh, I felt that I felt a very strong call to come here to the mountains. And uh, it's kind of been everything I thought it would be, both the good and the bad. Um, it's been a great 12 years uh, that I've been here in Nuba, and I, I hope to stay uh, much longer if God can keep me. I've heard you um, talk with others when they have asked the question about, you know, well, didn't you sacrifice so much to go there? Um, and you, you've talked about the the sense of, you know, as Christians, we're called to pick up and carry our cross, and that is a, that can be agonizing, mm-hmm. um, and uh, mm-hmm. the distance from family here. But God has brought you into a relationship, uh, and you now have a wife, and so— um, yes. I'd love an I'd love an update on that because that was a long time coming. Right, right. So I married very late in life. Um, I met my my future wife here in Sudan. She's a, a local uh, young lady who grew up just near the hospital, and we hired her on the job initially, and then um, worked for she worked with us for a couple of years, and we sent her to nursing school. Uh, we had kind of a long distance relationship going on. Then she came back, and we got married. Uh, it was quite it was quite a day. Um, there were, I don't know how many people were there, maybe five to 10,000 people at the wedding. It was a huge event, and it was during some very heavy time in the fighting. Um, but I think it was really kind of a sign of hope for the people that despite the uh, the fighting and the, the hardship everybody had, that there was some bright outlook that somebody was here and, and people were actually getting married and carrying on with life. And it's been a wonderful uh, few years of marriage for us. Um, we haven't had any children yet, but we're in the process now of adopting a child. Uh, we've identified a child in South Sudan, in Juba, and uh, we're hoping any any day now, any week now, he'll come and join us. Um, so that, that'll be our first child. He'll be an adopted kid from South Sudan, and we're, we're really waiting uh, very anxiously to get him. Oh, well, we'll be praying with you um, for that. That's just wonderful. Um, Dr. Tom Katina Thank and you. I are going to take a very brief break, and then we will return to <clears throat> our conversation. He serves as a surgeon. Uh, with the African Mission Healthcare Organization. The hospital is called Mother of Mercy. It's in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan, and we'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Dr. Tom Katina, um, and he serves in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan for a long period of time. He was the only surgeon for more than uh, 1.3 million people in that region. He now does uh, have another pediatrician that has come alongside him. Um, Dr. Tom, that still doesn't sound like enough. Uh, When we think of the ways in which people can help you all do what you are doing, what what are the primary needs that you experience and how can people connect um, their resources with those needs? Right. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, Carmen, the most pressing need we have is for is for financial help. Um, I don't mean to be crass, but I think that's the honest truth. We're we're fully dependent on individual people to help keep the hospital going. Um, I mean, we see 130,000 outpatients a year. We do around 2,000 operations uh, inpatients. We we have five to seven thousand. It's all we finance all of that through uh, private individuals. So a financial contra- a financial contribution 
is a huge help to us. Anything people can come up with, um, that's probably first and foremost where, what our biggest need is. The other things, logistics, I mean, it's, it's very complicated to move things here. And it's, you know, to move, um, say, materials or supplies, say, from the U.S. to us in Nuba is very difficult and very costly. So often it's easier uh, for us to buy things, say, in Kenya, and then to transport them up here ourselves and find a way to get those up here. Uh, but financial things are the most difficult. Um, for those times when I do have to go out of Nuba Mountains, uh, getting a replacement doctors is a big problem. Um, I do have to get out occasionally to go and, and fundraise or do whatever. Um, so anybody who would be willing to come and fill in for me, especially a surgeon, I can fill in when I'm out. That will be a big help uh, also. And the primary um, place online where people can connect both for donations and then if there were a surgeon listening and, you know, he or she wanted to connect with you, where um, where <coughs> online? Because I, I have several places where you are reachable. So tell me where the best one is. Probably for financial help is through African Mission Healthcare, and uh, they're www.amhf.us. Right now, we're having a, a fundraising campaign that started, and the uh, link for that is nuba2020.com. So nuba2020.com, and that, that can be simple. for financial help or whatever you want to do. Right, and then through African Mission Healthcare, they can um, they should be able to get a message to me. Um, I think if you went through African Mission Healthcare to their website, they will get a message to me yeah. eventually if someone they come and help. All right. If you're listening right now, yeah, and if you're listening right now and you say to yourself, hey, I want to connect with him, you can always reach out directly uh, to me, uh, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com, and we'll be sure you get uh, the contact information that you need for Dr. Katina. Um, but Nuba2020.com is going to be the direct place that we're going to send people online because that one is certainly easy to remember. Nuba is N-U-B-A and then 2020.com. Dr. Tom, um, I would love for you to tell us a story about someone that you have met along this journey who inspires you. <clears throat> right. Well, um, boy, that's, that's a that's a that's a that's a hard one. What I would say is, let me let me pick out one of my patients. Um, this this woman was about sixty years old, and she was living in a cave in the mountains because her village was being shelled by the Sudan government. So they took refuge in caves. And she came out of the cave one time <clears throat> and an Antonov um, airplane came overhead and dropped some dropped bombs and one of the shells from the bombs exploded and shattered her leg. So she came to the hospital and we had her in um, on the bed in traction to treat. The, she had one leg was fractured, the other foot was blown off. So we amputated one foot. The other leg that was better was in traction. And while she was in traction, in traction means she had a pin through her leg and she was kind of pinned to the bed by a weight. During that time, one of the uh, Sudan Air Force planes came overhead and bombed the hospital. And during all the chaos and confusion, I ended up on the floor of the hospital under a bed trying to get coverage. And there was a young girl, about 11 years old, right next to me, was crying, was terrified because we were being bombed. This woman who had her leg in traction, had a fractured leg and terrible pain, somehow managed to get on the floor with us and to calm this girl down, speak to her in very kind words in her local language and was able to calm the girl down. When the bombing was over, we got her back in bed. But for me, what was incredible with that patient was how she had the courage and the strength and the presence of mind, despite her own pain and anguish, was able to calm this girl down during this very terrifying episode. So for me, I take a lot of my inspiration from these Nuba people who are incredibly strong and resilient.
Dr. Tom, um, I've heard you make a comment um, that on a visit to the to the United States, um, one of the things that you observed was the spread of the disease of cynicism. And I would love for you to simply encourage um, particularly young people who are listening right now um, against this disease of cynicism in our society, that there is much good to be done in the name of Christ and there is endless opportunity to do it. Absolutely. You know, I think I think people get cynical when their expectations uh, don't meet reality. And I think for us as Christians, we we can't worry about end results. We we have a we have a commission. We're 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 told by God very specifically what we have to do. We've got a very important mission in life. And no matter what the outcome is, whether we're successful or not, whether patients die or they don't die, whether we think that our life is going somewhere or not, we have to keep pushing ahead. We don't have to fulfill other people's expectations. What we need to do is keep our idealism, keep our hope in Christ that our lives are worth, have a lot of meaning, that what we're doing has worth. I think this comes back to my deep belief that each of us has such incredible inherent worth and value. If we just keep that in mind, that each of us individuals have that worth and value, and everybody we interact with has that inherent incredible worth and value, that will help to to waylay some of the cynicism which creeps into our lives and really is very destructive and corrosive. So we want to invite people um, to go to Nuba2020.com. You can read more of Dr. Tom's story. Um, you can also participate directly in this ministry and in this effort. You can um, you can read stories about the impact uh, of this ministry in the Nuba Mountains, uh, and you can come alongside Dr. Tom and his family, uh, his growing family. We're going to just pray that uh, in tremendous blessing um, upon you and your wife and your forthcoming son and other children that Thank God you. might add to your number um, in the coming years. Just want to encourage people to go to Nuba, N-U-B-A, 2020.com. Uh, Dr. Tom, thank you so much. Um, it, one of the things that I have heard you talk about in the past, and maybe we'll we'll close with this, is is this um, the value of a child and the value of children in communities like mm-hmm. the one that you serve. Can you just speak to the value of a child? Right. You know, it's it's interesting because in the Western world, um, the growth rates in Western Europe and the U.S. are are, way, are going way down. The growth rate in the U.S., I think the fertility rates are at 1.3. Children are not valued in the Western world anymore. And this is a terrible shame. In Africa, it's totally different. People value children. Um, big families are valued. Um, they They add so much to the family. I think we've lost that in the Western world. We've gotten so caught up in our materialism in our lifestyle, that children become a burden. This is a terrible mistake that we're making in the Western world. We are slowly aborting and contracepting ourselves out of the future. And uh, without children, there is no future. And uh, I, for me, I take a lot of courage living here in Africa where there are children everywhere and everybody takes joy in these children. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, I think in the West, we're losing sight of that. Well, I want to leave it right there. And again, I want to encourage people to go to Nuba, N-U-B-A, 2020.com. I mean, if you scroll down on the page, one of the things that you'll see is that um, just it's, it's extraordinary. $11 is enough to cover the care of a patient for a day. So this is actually um, a campaign, Nuba2020.com, in which everyone can, con- can contribute and participate. And it's really um, what a blessing to be invited into the heart of Nuba and into this ministry. So Dr. Tom Katina, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen, so much for having me. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. The Lord bless. The Lord bless. We'll be right back. God bless you too.
So I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering about you and your reaction to that. Um, are you drawn? Are you drawn to the edges where um, where God still needs His people to go to serve others in the Spirit of Christ in ministries that bring real redemption and real hope? Um, I have family members serving in Northern Togo, um, and. I've got members of my extended family who don't particularly understand why that's happening. Why would you why would you leave the United States of America and all of the wonderful things that are um, possible here and through the advantages that we have here to go and live in a place that seems that seems God forsaken? You know, the reality is when when Christ's people go to a place, um, we actually extend the grace and mercy of God into those communities, into those regions, into those realities. Um, you can be functionally an ambassador of the king and the kingdom today, wherever you go, whatever your calling, whatever your vocation. That is a place where people are broken and desperate and lonely and need the gospel, need the redemption that is offered in and through Jesus Christ. And you can you can be an agent of that grace. Like I, That is so extraordinary. Um, So let's pray today for the people who are living out there on the edges of hope, and let's pray for people in our own communities who are living right now at the edge of hope. Um, And then let's be people of hope who help others perceive eternally. Like, let's just consider that an acronym today for the word hope. Let's help others perceive, connect with eternity. Let's help people have hope. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. we got a whole other hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.